I want to get right into the meat of our show. I don't know if you saw the news story. A Chicago man this past week brought a lawsuit against 27 women and Facebook over online comments that they made on this dating website, or it's a website called Are We Dating the Same Guy? And uh, there's a suit for defamation. There's a cause of action for anti-doxing. We're going to talk, what is doxing? And why is it against the law? And is this case going anywhere? And then we're going to talk a little bit more about First Amendment rights and where we're going on bans on TikTok. And with us uh, to talk about these issues is one of the country's most prominent legal experts on the First Amendment. Skokie's very own, Ari Cohn. He's a graduate from Cornell Law School. He serves as free speech counsel at Tech Freedom, uh, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank devoted to technology and policy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming in, Ari. Thanks so much for having me. So when you saw this lawsuit on file, what was your first thought? As a First Amendment lawyer, again, First Amendment comes into play sometimes in these things, and you're going to explain all of that. But what was your first thought? Well, my first thought, especially as an attorney who has defended against defamation lawsuits uh, frequently in the past, was that this is a train wreck, an unmitigated mess. <laughs> for, for for the plaintiff? <laughs> yes, it is just an indefensible lawsuit that makes no sense on its face and is likely to be thrown out even before defense counsel files a motion to dismiss for various reasons. So one of the things when when I first got you to commit to the show, we saw on the news feed that this guy, Nico D'Ambrosio, uh, just this past week, w- w- he was convicted of tax fraud. So had he been convicted of tax fraud and hadn't filed this lawsuit, no one would have known about it. Now I know not only that 27 women have called him a psycho, clingy, a ghoster. Now I know he's a convicted tax felon, right? Well, yeah. And that's kind of the thing that uh, a journalist uh, from TechDirt by the name of Mike Masnick coined uh, the phrase, the Streisand effect. And that came from Barbara Streisand's attempt to remove images from a website of her cliffside home in California, which ended up drawing more attention to her cliffside home in California. (laughs) Uh, And when you file defamation lawsuits about people who have said uncomplimentary things about you, generally speaking, that means all of the bad things, not only that they, that person said about you, but also all the other bad things that they might not have said about you come to the public, come to the fore in the public conscience. And that's just, it's not a place you want to be. Well, and then there, there is a process if it makes it to court whereby you have to defend the, the truth of the statements. So it could be by being in a public forum, you could be looking even more guilty than just the allegations like like Johnny Depp Johnny the Johnny Depp case defamation plaintiffs rarely have that much to gain particularly in cases like this where this guy did not suffer pecuniary loss he did not lose millions of dollars because of something someone said all he stood to gain was people not thinking he's a clingy psycho stalker or whatever (laughs) and and I, got, I want to get into the niceties of this just because I think as a legal show, we owe it to our listeners to kind of explain some of these things and, and why they may not, you know, they may not last and even get to trial. But I just think of a jury. Imagine a jury, you know, maybe a conservative jury in federal court. They come from the suburbs. You're sitting there and you have 27 women who are saying all kinds of terrible things about this guy. And I mean, it's it's believable when there are a number of people like by suing all those people, he's almost making the case that the majority of people think those things are true. 
Yeah, it's it's just a, it's a precarious position, and it's why filing a defamation lawsuit is very often not the right move. Uh, it's it's defamation is real, and it serves defamation law serves a purpose, but the instances in which we have seen it invoked over the past decade maybe have almost universally been in terms of the high profile cases really bad ideas yeah i mean i think people get angry and they go to the lawyer and to me i mean you're a first amendment lawyer i'm sure that you tell your potential clients gotta think twice before you do this or maybe even i'm not going to do that because you're going to be mad at me at the other side i mean it's rough because you have people who feel aggrieved And what they really need is competent, sane, and level-headed advice. And sometimes they just don't get it. They find someone who is willing to take their anger and weaponize it in the court system when that's really going to hurt way more than it helps. Um, And and that's really a problem. It causes a lot of issues. And I will say this, and you have heard me say this, listeners, uh, that is a problem throughout the the bar and I, I'm, what I'm saying is it's not just First Amendment cases, family law, which is what where I do my most of my work. Family law, I see lawyers do that where they stoke the fire and they get people all worked up, thinking that they're going to you know get the revenge that they 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 think they're entitled to by dragging the whole thing through the court system. And when you come out, the only thing you are is broke. <laughs> yeah, and a good lawyer will tell you. You might be angry, but this is not something you want to pursue. That is the counsel that you really need. You don't need someone to yes-man your every grievance. You need someone to tell you when it's worth it and when it's not. Absolutely. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the definition of defamation, why this case, I think both Ari and I feel like this case is going nowhere uh, from what we know, uh, anti-doxing laws and invasion of privacy. And I'm also going to ask you when we come back, should you post that Yelp review? When we come back, you were listening to the Karen Conti Show on WGN. Welcome back. We're talking to Ari Cohn. He is a First Amendment lawyer, and we're talking about this lawsuit that many of you may have heard about, where a Chicago man is bringing suit against 27 women in Facebook for comments made on a website called Are We Dating the Same Guy? Let's talk about defamation and why you believe this case may not even make it to to trial. So defamation, in the plainest way I can possibly say it, is a false statement of fact about another person that is published to a third party that causes some specific harm. And what is excluded from that, obviously, by statement of fact, is a statement of opinion. There is no such thing in the law as a false opinion. And it's hard to even decide to figure out what the plaintiff is actually saying was defamatory, because if you read the complaint, he doesn't actually say what statements are defamatory and why they are false. And that is just the first thing you have to do in a complaint for a defamation lawsuit. So if he if if he's if one of the women said he was a psycho, a psycho, that's not a statement of fact. That's just like saying he's crazy or he's nuts or he's a jerk. That's not it's not uh, definable. Yeah, no reasonable person would take that as a psychological diagnosis. Obviously. No. Right. Um, so it is clearly a statement of opinion. Uh, and clingy? Someone's clingy? I mean, that's not a statement of fact either, is varies it? varies by person. The only thing that you could maybe say is a statement of fact is perhaps 
oh, he, we had sex once and he ghosted me. But even that, you know, this is what happens on dating websites. I mean, you, you, you know, I, I mean, you know, for, for certain age group and a certain group of people. And even if that was false, what harm did that actually cause him? Right. And is it worth litigating? Is it worth quite literally making a federal case out of it? I, I don't think so. I, I just don't. I don't really know where where this is going. Um, and well, we and we talked about it in the in the first segment at, at how the lawyers should have toned this down. Let, let's talk about uh, doxing because that's a word that's really being used a lot now. And my understanding, there's a new law in Illinois about that. Can you describe what doxing is and what the law says? Well, doxing doesn't really have a generally accepted definition, but under the Illinois law, it is posting online or by electronic communication personally identifiable information that helps trace the identity of a person with the intent that it is used to harm or harass a person and with knowledge or reckless disregard of the fact that it would be used to cause bodily injury, death, or stalking. And I want to stop them right there <laughs> because this, the Are We Dating the Same Guys group is actually a group dedicated to telling what men, women should stay away from, like kind of the exact opposite, opposite. of stalking. <laughs> right. So I'm not really sure how they think that's going to play out. Um, but, you know, if this was like a, a Facebook group you know, devoted to like vigilante justice, Maybe you have a plausible Yeah, like case. go out into his house and go do something bad to his car or something. Yeah, it's not that. It's the opposite. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's literally just don't engage with this person. Interesting. And just as an aside, these anti-doxing laws, are, is there talk about those being unconstitutional? Because it seems to me, it, you know, obviously, if you say go to this person's house and do something and you're instigating and inciting, that that is a bad thing. But there's so much information that's available online, like where people live and what how to spell their name and even their phone number. Uh, you know, you, you subscribe to white pages and you can get a number of phone numbers that maybe aren't listed on, online. I mean, is, is there a possibility this law is going to be stricken down? So the law actually has a savings clause saying this law should not be interpreted in a way that is inconsistent with the First Amendment. If it's protected by the First Amendment, it doesn't fall under the doxing law. I actually... I'm very skeptical skeptical of those clauses. They really put a lot of burden on the people looking to speak to f- know the vagaries of First Amendment law and say, okay, is this for sure protected? Is it for sure not protected? Is it somewhere in the middle? It's really hard for your ordinary person to figure out, oh, well, if it says speech protected by the First Amendment is excluded, then it's fine. Uh, it, that's just not something normal people can actually ascertain. Uh, absolutely. And, and you know, I can see this being misused. I mean, even a politician, someone who comes and says, listen, write your congressman about this issue. If you feel strongly, here's his number or call his hotline. And then he's inundated. I'm not saying our congressmen are going to spring a lawsuit, but, you know, that, you know, where does it cross the line? But even even like before that, say you tweet something about uh, a politician and you tag them or something that gives them an identification of a person and their social media account, which is included in personally identifi- identifiable information. And 
So then you've actually, if you're trying to get people to tweet at that person by tagging them, does that count? That cannot yeah. be the case. There's just, there's a lot of problems with these laws. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can see that coming. And, and I'm sure there are lawyers like you who are, your mission is to support the First Amendment and make sure that there are no infringements that are unnecessary, that, you know, that you could be challenging those laws. Um, Let's uh, let's talk about just briefly what is uh, invasion of privacy and how hard because that's one of the allegations that this plaintiff made against these women in Facebook. What 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 do you make of of these allegations and what needs to be proven? Yeah, so false light invasion of privacy is effectively you said something that's false and it portrayed me in a way that is not accurate and it's highly offensive to a reasonable person, whatever that means. First of all. Um, <laughs> And I have suffered damage as a a result. But you have to actually back up a second to defamation. And I'm going to try and put this in as simple a way as possible. There are two kinds of defamation. There's defamation per quad, which means that you have to actually plead. This harmed me in a very specific way. Here are the financial damages that I have incurred as a result. Couldn't get a job, lost my job, you know, had a higher bodyguard, whatever, whatever. And obviously, the plaintiff here could not actually plead that because there wasn't anything. So what they did was they pled defamation per se, which means it's so obviously damaging on its face that you don't the damages are presumed. You don't have to actually plead the damages. But that defamation per se is only a few certain categories and relevant to this particular case is uh, statements that are prejudicial to a trade or profession or implies a want of capacity or capability uh, in someone's employment. And so what they tried to do is say, well, you said that I'm a, I'm a bad person and I did sexually questionable things and therefore that impacted my trade or profession or professional reputation. But that's not what it means. Just because it impacts your professional reputation doesn't mean it's defamation per se. It has to be something that actually directly attacks your one of your job qualifications. So unless the plaintiff's job and occupation required him to carry on emotionally healthy relationships <laughs> in dating, which fortunately it doesn't seem like that's the case, then that's not going to work. It's it, This is a very complicated area of law. And when we went through law school and learned this, it, it took us weeks to kind of work through it because it is very complicated. But just suffice to say that the law makes it difficult to bring these lawsuits for good reason, because uh, the you don't, you know, you don't want speech to be to be monitored and to be actionable everywhere you go and 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 the mm-hmm. law i think encourages people to be able to speak freely exactly and that's why and the point i'm getting to is that the false light invasion of privacy if it's based on a defamation per se claim that fails it necessarily fails as a result because we don't want plaintiffs to be able to bring false light claims where they could not bring a defamation claim it's it's set up so that we can't have this oh well that's not going to work so i'm going to try this workaround over here yeah I, we only have about a minute or so but i want to ask you this simple question and hopefully get a short answer and maybe talk about it on the other end but the plaintiff also sued facebook is what what is the defense to this 
The defense of that is Section 230 immunizes Facebook for anything that users post. And that is very clear. That is black letter law. And it is not debatable. And the fact that they did not inform themselves of this before filing the lawsuit draws serious, draws their professional judgment into serious question so 230 and you may have heard this but if you want to be a smarty pants with your friends you can throw around 230 it's the communications decency act is that what it's called yeah so you know and that basically says you know facebook is a billboard they're not responsible they're just they're posting what other people are saying and therefore they can't be held responsible and you know i was even thinking that you know by pleading this you know it 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 could even be something that could be sanctionable by the court i mean i'm not saying it is i'm just saying it 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 for you know when you don't understand when you if you don't understand that or don't cite that and you're 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 trying to make someone liable who can't be held liable under the law that's not a good thing for a lawyer. Am I saying that right? Uh, you are. And there are a lot more reasons than that. This is also sanctionable, I think. Um, but but yeah, th- this is a failure to in- by the lawyers to inform themselves of the legal landscape. And that is a big issue. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk maybe about the TikTok bans. Well, we're here with Ari Cohn. He is a First Amendment special. I can't say specialist. He's a First Amendment. He concentrates his practice in First Amendment. And you're listening to The Karen Conti Show on WGN. That's the First Amendment being sung. I think it reads a little better than it does. Although this gets into it a little bit. Yeah, it's okay. We're here with Ari Cohn. Uh, He concentrates his practice in First Amendment law. And we were talking about Section 230, which is that that provision that it makes uh, social media immune from lawsuits regarding the content of what's posted. And there has been talk that we should get rid of that or that there should be more regulation of social media, just without getting into all the details, because that's a huge topic. That's just like a whole, you know, there's a whole course in law school. But what do you think about that? Uh, I think getting rid of Section 230 would eviscerate the Internet as we know it. That is what makes it possible and economically feasible for platforms to host our speech. If you want to go to a time where you have to host your own website or blog to speak your mind and then find an audience by yourself, then go ahead. Eliminate Section 230. But other than that, there is no way to host user-generated speech without it. It just would not be possible. You'd be crushed by litigation cost. You know, they're also talking, and we're going to talk a little bit about this TikTok bans and all of that. You know, I've heard different things like, you know, the law is just not catching up with with technology as it should. And so maybe we should give the FTC uh, more authority to regulate some of these things. Or should we have a Congress pass a law that allows it to pass laws that do some uh, more uh, regulating? Or should we just have a new agency created for the very purpose of doing more regulation in social media? Do any of those make sense um, from your standpoint? No. And the reason is getting government involved in regulating speech is bad, whether it is the government telling you you can't protest, and it is bad when the government says we're going to control the avenues of online speech it's bad one way or the other because one day someone will be in that position whether it's the president or the fdc chair or something who does has a certain view of speech that you don't have and what happens then is that you find that you have given the authority to those people 
who would curtail your speech. And that is why we keep the government out of speech in the first place. It just seems like a slippery slope, doesn't it? It, it, it inevitably is. And, and so this goes right into the topic on TikTok bans, because we've seen the whistleblowers come out saying there are certain algorithms that show that TikTok knew that uh, young girls were using TikTok and to, um, you know, to harm themselves and, and get ideas about social, about body shaming and things like that. And so the question is, and, and TikTok has been banned in different forums, different states, I think. Uh, I don't know how many states currently. Is it few? I, I don't know. Um, and, and federal and state governments have, have largely banned uh, people from using it in their government. So what do we do about this? What Are these bans going to be upheld? And do you think they're good ideas? Well, I think it's first of all important to recognize that the world is never going to be a sanitized and safe place. Before TikTok was supposedly causing people body dysmorphia and, and body image issues, it was Teen Vogue, and it was all <laughs> like the fashion magazines that showed thin models. This is not a new thing. This is just a transference of moral panic from one area to another. Um, but no, these bans aren't going to be upheld, and in fact, the district court in Montana uh, held that the ban was unconstitutional because what it did was it just it swept far too broadly and it banned an entire communication platform for reasons that did not actually line up with the government's interest. It's fine for the government to ban TikTok on its own devices. There's no First Amendment problem with that, and that addresses national security concerns. But if you're worried that TikTok is hoovering up the personal data of American citizens, well, I have bad news for you. The Chinese government can go down the street to data brokers that already have that information and buy it outright. And there's nothing stopping them from doing that. They do not need TikTok for it. So do you think the government should be involved at all? Like, let's just say TikTok knows that what it does is it, it brings young girls to certain um, whatever, certain content that is harmful to them one way or the other, encouraging them to shoplift or I'm just you know, making up something. Is there, is, does that survive the, the 230, that, that immunity when they know what they're doing on this? Well, actually, what it doesn't survive is the First Amendment. And that is because we do not punish we do not impose liability we do not curtail speech because of lawful ideas and detestable as they may be saying anorexia is great is constitutionally protected speech uh, as as awful as we might find it and we do not impose liability for that speech because that inherently curtails it so unless the speech is something that is so clearly not protected uh, the government really can't do anything about it. It can't impose liability for it, and it can't ban it. Does it matter if we're talking about minors? It might, but it, there has not been anything showing that it has reached that level. When California tried to ban the sale of violent video games to minors, the Supreme Court rejected it, uh, emphatically saying that it is not the legislature's place to decide what is appropriate for kids. That is the parent's a job and the government can't say well we're just enforcing you're just uh en enhancing parental rights because that's not what it's doing you're imposing government's views on what parents should decide but that's not the government's job it is parents job and parents should be more active in their kids digital lives and then that is for sure that and that is that is true um I, there's a topic that just came to my mind i haven't talked to you about it i hope i'm sure you'll have a, a good answer um you know i 
when I we, we talk about unpopular speech, that that's that's what makes this topic hard because when you hate the speech, you gotta love the First Amendment, right? So and you can't just say, Well, I don't like that religion or I don't like this speech, so therefore we have to ban it. It's it's gotta be content neutral. But what about hate crimes? And this is something that's always tugged on me, and it's not like I, I like, you know, Nazi swastikas going up on and people killing people because they're they're gay or whatever. I, I'm not saying that, but what makes a crime worse when someone think something or says something? And is that an appropriate use of an enhancement in the law? Well, for the proponents of hate crime uh, escalations and what have enhancements, uh, what they'll say is that it strikes fear into certain uh, disadvantaged minorities, you know, their communities. It says that makes that community feel especially targeted, especially unsafe, and that is a particular problem. Uh, There's a lot of debate over whether hate crime uh, enhancements are a legitimate thing. Um, I think that, generally speaking, you know, they they involve a crime to begin with. Right. Uh, so it's maybe a little bit less problematic than saying you can't say hateful things, which obviously would be a First Amendment problem. Uh, but there's not an insignificant portion of people who think that hate crime enhancements are problematic from a First Amendment standpoint. Uh, it's it's a really tough question because there are very legitimate problems that come from this. Yeah, I mean, I was just uh, thinking about this guy in Buffalo who went to the grocery store and, and killed 10 African Americans, and now the federal government, uh, and which this administration said they were never going to use the death penalty, uh, brought federal charges in seeking the death penalty because of the horrific nature and the targeted nature of the crime. And it's it's hard for me to not say, you know, if there, there is going to be a death penalty, I'm not, no fan of the death penalty, but if there is going to be one, this kid deserves it. I mean, if you if you believe in the death penalty, I mean, I, I would think that a mass killing, regardless of the motivation, should probably qualify. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, it just makes it worse when it's targeted like in, in that yeah. way. Yeah, it's just... You don't, you don't. It's not a good answer either way. Uh, I don't think. Yeah, there are, there are no right answers here. No, um, and uh, so let's take a break. And when we come back, let's talk about the hot topic of college campuses and First Amendment speech because that has been getting a lot of attention lately. You're listening to the Karen Conti Show. I'm here with Ari Cohen. Back in a minute. We're back on the Karen Conti Show. I'm talking to a First Amendment lawyer, Ari Cohn, who is nice enough to come in the studio. I'm going to read a comment by a texter. Clearly, Ari does not have children, or he's not aware of the predators that are luring kids in the social media platforms, even from parents who are doing everything possible to set up blocks. If high tech would just put a parent package together to keep kids safe, it would be an absolute win for all of us. What what is your comment on that? There is nothing that is going to absolutely kids keep kids safe. There has never been that. There will never be that because the world is a complicated place. And when it comes to content on the internet specifically, it's impossible, even when you don't consider the scale at which social media platforms are operating. Take eating disorders. It is very, very difficult, as many people have written, to decide what is pro-eating disorder and what is anti eating disorder intervention type speech that is both because they use the same language and because the interventionists who try to sway people away from eating disorders co-opt the hashtags and other signals that the pro eating disorder community uses to try to divert people from that path it is absolutely impossible to do the content moderation perfectly and it is 
incredibly impossible to do it at the scale that we are seeing. And anyone who thinks that there is an easy solution to this and that the tech companies can just figure it out are not accounting for the complexity of human communication, language, and and basically human behavior. And being sneaky. (laughs) And sometimes Uh, that sneakiness is being used for good. Right, right. Like like you said, trying to just co-opt to get, pe- to get kids away from the bad stuff and, and, and direct it to the good stuff. Let's address the issue briefly of what's going on in college campuses everywhere. And first, I, I want to talk about the difference between a private college or university and a public one. And can you explain to our listeners why the law might be different with one to the other? Yeah. So the First Amendment applies to government actors. Public universities are arms of the government, and therefore they are bound by the First Amendment. Private institutions, while they may receive federal funding in terms of student loans and things like that, that is not sufficient to make them government actors for First Amendment purposes. So private schools do not have to adhere to the First Amendment, whereas state schools, public schools do. And there are great arguments for why private schools should adhere to the same standards for free speech as public schools. But legally speaking, that's not the case. So is it fair to say that private schools can have mandates and ethical codes for their students that are more content moderated than the public schools? They absolutely can, but I would argue that they should be upfront about it. They should not say that we allow free speech if they don't actually allow free speech. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the things that we're seeing where, um, you know, again, so a public, let's take a public school, a public school and um, the issue of, say, the the war that's going on um, Gaza, you know, where the, some students are pro-Palestinian, some are pro-Israel. So, you know, at some point, some of the students feel like they're being threatened if they're Jewish or, or vice versa. So how does the school make rules about this? And does when does something, when does a rule actually violate the First Amendment when you're telling people not to say things about these kinds of hotbed issues? Well, a rule would violate the First Amendment if it infringes on speech that is protected, And obviously, intimidation and incitement and threats are not protected, but there are legal definitions for those terms, and public schools have to adhere to them. And I think private schools should, too. Free speech is not an easy thing. It is difficult. It means we need to actually encounter things that make our skin crawl. Uh, Growing up in Skokie, I learned that from a very early age. Uh, But... That is that is the price we pay for not having our own views censored. By the way, uh, I heard you speak on another show, and it reminded me um, that this, back in the 70s, and I'm not sure if you're old enough to remember this, but back in the 70s, the Nazis wanted to march in two places. One of them was my hometown of Berwyn, one of them because there was an idea that there was a fan club there unfortunately, <laughs> at the time. Uh, Berwyn at the time was, was not, there were not a whole lot of people of color there. Uh, and in Skokie, where you grew up, uh, because they had a huge population of Jewish people and Holocaust uh, survivors. Um, that, and that case was just, uh, I just remember that time. It was so horrible. I mean, I remember the day they marched. It was horrible. I'm not old enough to have lived through it, but that is exactly what has informed my views on freedom of expression uh, from a young age. Yeah, I would imagine that you have family members and, and neighbors and people who who lived through that. And um, it, but it was it was a good moment 
for First Amendment, right? And frankly, it was a good moment for for everything because nothing really happened. Yeah. No one's mind was changed by any of that stuff. And nobody, nobody, nobody's lives were lost. We got through it. And that is the thing to remember in these controversies is that we're going to get through it. It's going to be okay. It might hurt for a moment, but we're going to be fine. So let's go back to the college campuses. And, you know, I was just thinking of an example of this. Like, let's just say some a young man stood up and said, you know what, I don't think women really are as smart as men. And I think that they don't belong in the workforce the same way, blah, blah, blah. And that's free speech, right? But is that also sexual harassment? And where does the line get drawn between punishing a person for saying, having those opinions and saying those opinions? Is that harassment? Or is that some sort of, is there some sort of exception for that? I, I, I where does that line get drawn? It, it's detestable speech, in my opinion, but it is protected speech because in the educational context, at least, the harass, discriminatory harassment has to be so severe, pervasive, and objectionable, objectively offensive that it effectively curtails someone's access to educational opportunities or benefits. So it's hard to say that somebody espousing a crazy, stupid, bigoted idea like that would actually prevent anyone from taking part in their campus community. If someone followed around every female student and yelled at them from the time they left their dorm room till the time they got to class, uh, and it was pervasive in that sense, maybe you're getting closer to the line there. But just espousing a bad idea has never been illegal. And let's talk about, and I don't know that we need to actually talk about a former president and incitement, but where does that line get drawn? If you stand up and say, it would be a good idea for people to stand up against the election results. And the the next line, which would be, why don't you all come to the Capitol and break in and uh, go after Nancy Pelosi? Like, wh- where on the spectrum does that turn into a crime? So... Advocacy of the use of force is not necessarily incitement. It is only incitement when it is intended to and likely to incite imminent lawless action. So it has to be immediate. It has to be right. It has to be such that somebody hearing the words doesn't have the time to think about it before they grab their pitchfork and their torch. Okay, can you give me maybe an example? I don't know if you can do that off the top of your head. Well, I can give you an example of what's been held to not be incitement, and that is someone saying at a protest when it was being disbanded, we'll take the effing streets later. That was held to not be immediate enough. Um, so it's, it's a really, really narrow category of speech. If we were standing outside somebody's house and the, there was an angry mob, and I said, let's burn it down, and I was speaking to the whole crowd, given the tenor of what was happening, that could be incitement. But it's a very, very small category that is just really, really hard to meet. Yeah, interesting. So um, before we go, just where do you see some trends going? Just like, do you have any thoughts about maybe what the Supreme Court might be dealing with in the next upcoming five years or so? Well, the Supreme Court is currently considering a whole bunch of First Amendment cases, including whether government coordination or collaboration with social media platforms on content moderation violates the First Amendment, and whether states can say, 
social media platforms, you have to leave up certain speech that you want to take down because we want you to take uh, leave it up. Mm. Um, so those are coming up in this next term. I guarantee you in the next two years, we will see cases about age, verifi- age verification for social media and pornography websites and things like that. Uh, there's technology is really um, people are testing what we thought we knew about the First Amendment, trying to see if they can move doctrine because of technology. Uh, and so it's we're actually in a particularly precarious time for the First Amendment online. It, it seems like it. It seems like the cases are heating up even in the religious uh, realm that we're seeing. I want to thank you so much. Ari Cohn, uh, can you tell us a little bit about where we can reach you if we want to reach you? And I, I'm not going to dox you here, so I'm going to let you do it all by yourself. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, you can go to Tech Freedom's website, techfreedom.org, um, and my email address is listed on there if anyone wants to send me a hate mail or, or what have you. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Ari Cohn. I am on Blue Sky at AriCohn.com. Um, also, my website, there's a contact form there if you'd rather that uh, forum for hate mail. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'd get some fan mail as well, though. You never know. I'm at my best when it's hate mail. (laughs) I bet you are. Anyway, thank you so much for coming in studio. I know you're not feeling well, but you did a great job.